You know, Kevin, I was, uh, it was the other day, actually. <laughs> tell me. Whatever it is, tell me. Do it quickly, because we don't have much time. I was just feeling so distraught. <laughs> 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 I'm going to stop you right there, because this is, this is uh, too, too intense for banter. Welcome to Know It All with Tay and Kay. I'm Tay. I'm Kay. Uh, and today, if you don't mind if mm, I please. take the helm here, uh, today's topic is very close to my mm. heart and uh, has been as long as I can remember. I as well. Oh, well, uh, mm. you know, I don't think I really had any idea what love truly meant until the day I first learned of dinosaurs. dinosaurs. Taylor, can I share my earliest known memory with you? Yep. Sure. It was like in other, any other October school day, uh, except it was raining. Mm. And when it rained, uh, recess was driven indoors, where we were paradoxically forced to partake in board games or reading instead. <laughs> I was only six at the time, so I couldn't read so well, but I grabbed a book anyway, since Greg Mansbury and Clifton Boggs were bogarting the Connect Four. The title of this book, Taylor, turned out to be... Dino Island, mm. and it just so happened to be the sort of book whose illustrations explode out of the page and into reality. A book that pops up? <laughs> no way. Yes way. We should do an episode on pop-up books. Mm-hmm, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, I opened the book, and this enormous lizardous beast sprung from the binding, and I, no joke, sprung from my seat. I'm about I, to do so right now. I, I literally leapt out of my plastic chair, and others craned their necks up from lesser texts to get a piece of the action. Now, Miss Gretis limped over to the book and read aloud the words on the page. Now, unfortunately, I can't remember what it said because I haven't read this book in at least a week, but this one afternoon... Recess became story time, and from that day forth, dinosaurs were in my dreams, around my nightmares, and on my mind. <laughs> you know, that's crazy. I had a virtually identical story to relate to no you. No kidding. No. no. <laughs> and you're the comedian. Well, pal. it's no coincidence. I mean, this is not an uncommon thing for children to go through. Dinosaurs are very often the first thing that blows a child's mind. Yeah, and that's a big deal. Yeah, I remember when I was only seven years old, someone told me that dinosaurs were 65 million years old, and I was all like, what? Good parents and teachers capitalized on this by using dinosaurs as a medium through which to teach. Now, by the time the average American child is in seventh grade, they've spent an entire year of their life learning about dinosaurs. So, forgive us for grazing over some stuff we feel to be common knowledge by this point. But what they never provide you with were first-hand accounts from dinosaurs elucidating their day-to-day. When dinosaurs first roamed the Earth 250 million years ago, long before ruling it, every continent was connected into a giant supercontinent known as Pangea, Pangea, surrounded by one giant super ocean, Panthalassa. So, uh, if you were a Chindosaurus, for example, in the late mm. Triassic Good period, dinosaur. yeah, certainly, you could travel from Africa to North America to Antarctica without ever having to get on a boat. Kevin. Yes? Little thought experiment. I'm a dinosaur. Summarize my entire life. Certainly. Okay, uh, well, first of all, Judging by your unique, vicious, and relatable way of being, you would definitely be born a Demetrodon. Hmm, interesting. You'd begin your life cycle like any dinosaur in the cloaca of your mother, rapidly resolving yourself into an eggy goo. Yeah, those precious first weeks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) After secreting you out of her egg... 
Hatch? Hatch. I'm going to say hatch. You'd incubate for several weeks as your brothers and sisters-to-be were slowly picked off by powerful synapsids and hungry scavengers. Fortunately, because you're doing this podcast, we can be certain that you survived your incubation period. Suddenly, you burst forth from your egg into a hot, tropical paradise. Oh, I can practically feel the heat wafting over my slick, oozing newborn scales. Keep going. Okay, your uh, inattentive mother is off somewhere else, and so you strike out boldly on your own, devouring any and all things small enough to fit between your adorable baby jaws. (laughs) Provided, of course, I'm not devoured And you're very lucky you're not. You do this for pretty much your entire childhood, which would last anywhere from six months to a year. But by then, you'd be a fully grown adult, 20 feet long, 10 feet tall, with an impressive array of teeth and an appetite for anything and everything, even your own children. So you engage in a few fights with local dino bullies. You strut through tropical rainforests. uh, I'm sorry, tropical rainforests. And uh, you cross the supercontinent. One day, you witness the first flower in existence blooming for the very first time. You know it. When would I have children? Constantly. Dinosaurs were so common and their fossils are so numerous because they laid eggs like fish. Plentifully. Literally hundreds of dinosaurs to a litter. Dinosaur courtship was a frequent and deadly occasion, especially for the Demetrodon. With their buzzsaw-like backs, mating almost always ensured the total bifurcation of the male. Yikes. Fortunately for you, you are an inferior specimen. What? And you live. Oh. Despite the overwhelming adversity of the natural world. Dinosaurs were the new kids on the block at this point. They and all other land-dwelling creatures lived under the merciless rule of synapsids, which were early mammalian-like reptiles who were so ugly, I will not even bother to describe them. Gross. Seriously. Now, as early dinosaurs and mammals began to spring into existence and prosper, it became increasingly clear that the age of the synapsid was nearing its end. Yeah, thank Christ. Both the dinosaurs and mammals began a cutthroat race to gain rule of Pangaea. The mammals way outnumbered the dinosaurs, but that was because of their minuscule size. The most ferocious mammal at the time was a dagger-toothed, beagle-sized horse. The largest was the ultra-friendly Gigantigote. The dinosaurs, on the other hand, while uh, small compared to later dinosaurs like the Brachiosaurus, were much larger and equipped to do battle with a staggering weaponized anatomy. Long rows of huge incisors. Bony claws for ripping and gouging. Projectile venom. Terrible Breath. Blood-curdling howls. Sledgehammer-like tails. The running speed of a car. Literal spikes coming out of their bodies. The ability to jump 120 feet without breaking stride. Skin that was stronger than Kevlar. Well, just to clarify, before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, these were just some of the dinosaurs' offensive and defensive traits, but no one dinosaur had all of them. Yeah, but maybe one did. (laughs) Not likely. (laughs) There's always hope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who are you, Edward Drinker Coke? <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> what? You're a Coke man? Yeah. You? Born and raised. No. <laughs> You're not? Absolutely not. You're a marsh man. Till the day I die. Wow. 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 Oh. How did we not know this about each other? How could you prefer a man of such cowardice? Cowardice? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you just refer to Othniel Charles Marsh, the father of modern paleontology, as a coward? I'm sorry. Did you just refer to Oatmeal Marsh as the father of paleontology? Or did you just fart in my ear? Because either way, it sounded like shit. Okay. Okay, then. Go ahead. Please tell me in the audience why O.C. Marsh was a coward and why Edward Drinker Cope, a man who was literally photographed fleeing the Battle of Gettysburg, is not. 
Cope was arrested over 36 times for aggravated assault. What kind of coward would incite so many brawls? Yeah, but he wasn't a fighter. He was a paleontologist, or at least he was supposed to be. Oh, uh, yeah, right. He had a different approach. The Tate No Prisoners approach that got us the thousands of dinosaur fossils, which you and I appreciate every day. Oh, oh, is, is that... Is that why Cope stole Marsh's work, compromised his dig sites, and on at least three separate occasions sunk boats with Marsh and priceless fossils aboard? Marsh was an old bumbling fool with a position of tenure at the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale, and that gave him a monopoly on the grant money. Well, hey now, saying he had a monopoly brings the constitutionality of what he did into question, and that I will not have. Oh, oh okay. I rescind that statement. But Marsh's stubbornness, advanced stage and the stranglehold he had on the grant money dropped the emerging scientific field of paleontology from third gear to first. Cope was ready to pop that sucker into sixth. Oh, okay. Is that why he put random fossils together and claimed them to be newly discovered dinosaurs? Uh, Remember the fancy dactyl? Yeah. The three-legged copalodon? <laughs> look, look. Both of those, while later proven to be fabrications, were made entirely of real bones. Oh, so it was just a petulant, spoiled brat grabbing at fame? Uh, he was doing what he had to do to garner attention and take funds away from Marsh, which he succeeded in doing. Marsh was a traditional archaeologist, down to his bones. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good one. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. He was in it for the science, <laughs> Taylor, for the knowledge. Even after Cope robbed him of his transportation equipment and his team, he continued on his own to dig anywhere city ordinances would allow him. Then, out of selflessness or perhaps pity, he sold his newly discovered fossils to his former student and ardent competitor and only person with the means to move the goods, the insolent, disrespectful, flatulent Edward Drinker Cope. Okay, Cope made some outrageous claims to kickstart his solo career. Absolutely. He promised the public a surge in dino fossil findings, and he did what he needed to to supply that demand. And yes, some of his fossils were frauds or mismatched, but at least half of them weren't. For every lobster don, there was a stegosaurus, and for every banana eater, there was a diplodocus. But paleontology under Marsh rule was a fringe pseudoscience at best, comparable to alchemy or, or, or cryptozoology. Nobody cared that some old dude found some bones, but everyone cared when a young upstart heisted some bones from a powerful old white dude and put them on display in the Trenton, New Jersey Museum of Taxidermy. Yeah? An undeniably wondrous place. God, isn't it? All of a sudden, everybody wanted to know what made those bones so valuable, how old they were, and what they belonged to. Cope alone started the dino revolution. I certainly cannot debate the impact Cope has had on paleontology. I mean, the character of Indiana Jones is loosely based on him. I guess I'm just old school. I like the originator, not the imitator. If Cope never came along, Marsh would have dined with a big pile of bones stuffed in his closet that would have been dumped in the garbage can without second thought. We would never have heard of dinosaurs if not for Cope. And Cope would have never heard of dinosaurs if not for Marsh. Cope recognized and appreciated Everything he learned from Marsh. That's why he erected that monument in his memory after his death. Have you seen it? I have. It's, it's very tasteful. He exhumed his corpse and, quote, fossilized it, but put it on display in a museum. That's what Marsh would have wanted. Hmm. Well, as you can see, even adults with families and early-onset diabetes have a childlike fascination when it comes to dinosaurs. Yeah, why is that? That is a question for us to answer after a word from our sponsors. Hmm. Hi, I'm Nigel Plupp, owner of Nigel's Total Tat. 
Here at Nigel's, we aren't your run-of-the-mill tattoo parlor. Sure, we offer first-rate tattoos from the best artists in the city at more than reasonable prices, and we also have hundreds of studs, rings, and gauges which we can safely and sterilely attach to your body. What sets us apart, however, is our first-rate tattoo removal specialist, or, as they prefer to be called, scartists. These scartists will work firsthand with you not only to remove your tattoos, but to turn your remaining scar tissue into a work of art itself. Just listen to a satisfied customer. I went to Nigel's to get a tattoo of my ex-wife's name removed, and what I got blew me away. Gina, my scartist, completely removed the tattoo and left me with an awesome scar that looks like a dragon breathing fire. Not only can the discolored scar tissue be shaped and adjusted, we at Nigel's can also manipulate the texture and grafting of the flesh, making your removed tattoo look like a much cooler scar. I had my face tat removed at Nigel's, and when they asked me what I would like my scar to look like, I said knife fight, and let Art, my scartist, go to work. Now when people ask me what happened to my face, I tell them it's an injury sustained from a Snickers knee, and they should see the other guy. Until May, we have a special deal at Nigel's. Come get a tattoo with us, and if you have it removed in less than a year, the removal is half off. I had to go undercover to infiltrate the Aryan Brotherhood for my job as a corporate spy, so Nigel's was perfect for me. I had over a dozen tattoos, which looked great, by the way, put all over my body in order to look the part. Then, ten months later, when I came to get them removed and turned into these awesome Far Side comics, I had to only pay half as much as I expected, leaving me with enough money to get at least six more tattoos. If you don't like any tattoo you get at Nigel's, we will remove it for free. And if you don't like any of our removal scars, we will cover it with a tattoo for free. That's the total tap promise. So come on into Nigel's Total Tat for a free consultation and talk to some of our talented artists and scartists. We're located off exit 35 in the Ridge Avenue Mini Mall. It's no secret that children the world over, across nations, races, cultures, social classes, tax brackets, and religions, love, 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 love dinosaurs. To a point... Children in the post-toddler, pre-tween demographic, ages 5 to 12 specifically, have an overwhelming dino appreciation. According to the 2009 U.S. Census, 64% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 41 stated that their first love was dinosaurs, or a specific type of dinosaur. And many of the people in that age group were not children when Jurassic Park came out, uh, which surely has or will inflate that but, percentage. But why, Kevin? Why? It's quite clobbious, really. We are fascinated by dinosaurs because they, or at least some of them, could swallow us whole. Huh. See, in our modern age, humans are at the top of the food chain. Yeah. Rarely are we legitimately, legitimately uh, threatened by other animals. Sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. A grizzly bear may stalk you, harass you, steal your trail mix, Certainly. and inevitably kill you, but it simply isn't n large enough to welcome you into the embrace of its mighty gullet like a cocktail shrimp. No, 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 no. Like a slowly roasted pork shank, bear would have to shred Kevin to smaller pieces before fully digesting him. The desire for man to be devoured whole dates back to ancient texts. You got Skyla Good. from the... Odyssey. Odyssey, yeah. You've got Grendel from, from Grendel from Beowulf. You've got Jonah's whale. You've got Pinocchio's whale. You know, a modern great white shark could feasibly swallow an entire boy. Feasibly, but sharks are equipped with row after row after row of endless teeth, and if you think they aren't going to use them, well, you've got, you got another, another thing, thing coming, coming pal. Uh, see, the idea of being enveloped into a womb-like state and dissolved to power something greater, known to physio uh, psychologists. <laughs> As the reverse birth complex is one of the most basic human desires. It's attractive to us. 
Taylor, let me ask you a question. I'll allow it. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be eaten by some huge beast? Oh, and, and then, then live the rest of my life inside the body of this beast, turning its enormous digestive system into a fuel-efficient utopian society? Of course, of course I have. have. We all have. And this concept, this idea, is discovered by nearly everyone as a developmental milestone in the post-pre-tween demographic. It signifies a physical maturing of the brain, the frontal lobe specifically, and opens up the mind's perception of scale and place. Dinosaurs work as a somewhat realistic focal point of this overwhelming desire. Especially the really huge ones. The mm. ones that, regardless of whether or not they ate meat, could swallow even a corpulent man with ease. Now, this is why all the most popular dinosaurs are big ones. Tyrannosaurus rex, Brontosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Allosaurus, Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Spinosaurus, all very hot topics. But the more populous and arguably most dominant dinosaurs are often forgotten. These dinosaurs inhabited the sea, the land, and the air, and outnumbered the next most populous dinosaur 2,000 to 1. Quite an accomplishment for something so small. We are, of course, referring to what is commonly known as a tinysaur, a class of very small dinosaurs which, much like plankton, provided the basis of the food chain for both carnivores carnivores and herbivores, as well as early mammals, fish, birds, and even insects. Some dinosaurs, in such as the Minusculoticus, were so tiny that even a few hundred could easily be caught in one very modest spider web. However, what was more likely to happen is that the tiny sores would swarm the spider and eat it alive. Yeah. Tiny sores were fierce omnivores that were so resilient that even the supposed great asteroid which extincted the dinosaurs couldn't do them in. Instead, they went on to wage eon-long wars with other top survivors like cockroaches, tube worms, and platypi. That is until they eventually evolved into many of the plants and animals we see today. Well, just how plentiful were tiny sores? Ubiquitous. Let's do a quick thought experiment. Yeah, let's. Uh, we have certainly found a fair amount of dinosaur fossils in the last 150 years alone, but the fossils only account for about 0.00003% of all the dinosaurs that existed, which brings me to salt. Table salt? The same. Now, if you put salt under a microscope, Taylor, what do you think you'll see? Simple. Stable, reliable sodium chloride molecules arranged in a crystalline cubes. Sure. A few. But 97% of all table salt is tiny sore fossils. What, you're telling me that tiny sores were so abundant that even today, tens of millions of years later, I could easily find in any American household variable plagues of tiny sore fossils? I am telling you that. And while you're sucking on that, Suck on this for a minute. High cholesterol is a buildup of plaque in the arteries, often caused by high amounts of salt. Mm. The sodium chloride, which makes up the other 3% of table salt, is easily digested, while the tiny sore fossils become plaque and can lead to heart disease, which causes more death in the United States every year than anything else. Mm. So even millions of the years down the line, the power of tiny sores to obliterate even apex predators such as ourselves is still abundantly clear. Just one of the many discoveries we owe to the genius of Othniel Marsh. Okay, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Marsh, for having the charisma, charm, and imagination to spend your Saturday evenings looking at spices under a microscope. And while we're at it, let's thank Mr. Cope for definitely not trying to ride Marsh's coattails when he claimed the existence of the pepperdactyl. I kind of walked into that one. Hmm. <laughs> um, it's fitting. It's rivalry. Yeah, I mean, it's beyond us. It's ages old. It's as old as time. It's the story of Cope and Marsh, the story of the dinosaurs. It's a story as old as when the first particles of matter 
declared war on dark matter. The story of good versus evil. Dinosaurs ruled the Earth for almost 200 million years, but rarely was it peaceful. One of those ages of peace came in the mid-Triassic period. Dinosaurs had just seized rule of Pangaea from the synapsids to the chagrin of early mammals, and for a time, there was peace. Some of the most intense peace ever on the planet. During this era known as the Age of Light and Grace, the herbivores worked together to ensure a utopian society, not just for dinosaurs, but for mammals, birds, and even fish. The carnivores grew restless under herbivorous rule. They were ostracized, believed to be evil. Which they were. But, they, to be fair, they were not as evil as omnivores. Well, see, that's a stereotype. Only some omnivores were evil. Some were good, but this tenuousness made them largely untrustworthy. While hungry for change, the carnivores were thirsty for blood. Nice. Their puny brains simply couldn't devise a complicated coup d'etat. Even after millions of years of collective thinking, the carnivores' plan boiled down to attack them all. Fortunately, for the herbivores, the meat-eaters were outnumbered by, if fossil records are to be believed, a factor of 17 to 1. What they really needed was a leader to come around and organize them. Yeah, not just any leader. A king. Well, not just any king. A tyrant. A tyrant king. The Tyrannosaurus rex, or T-Rex as they liked to be called, was not the largest carnivorous dinosaur. Make no mistake, though, they were still dinosauric in proportions. But what really set them apart was not their 10-inch long incisors, their razor-sharp scales, or even their 6-ton frame. No, what really set them apart was their tiny arms. Many theropods, or extremely large, evil dinosaurs, had either no arms or arms more fitting a beast to their size. Relative to their body size, Tyrannosaurus had the smallest arms arms of any species of dinosaur. This might sound like a hindrance or a target for ridicule, and certainly for several millennia it likely was. But a dinosaur can only take so much. Let's take another trip backwards in time to 1994. In isolated Newfoundland, paleontologist Janet Whipstill discovered what has affectionately been named the Tyrannosaurus all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Never met an archaeologist of any type that wasn't a real cut-up. Well, what she found, though, is now a landmark to the most important day in the history of the dinosaurs. Aside from the asteroid. Probably. Covering several acres were the scattered fossils of hundreds of dinosaurs, all of them belonging, strangely enough, to carnivores. Stranger still, though, were the nearly two dozen Tyrannosaurus skulls found with massive chunks of other, sometimes larger dinosaurs lodged in their windpipe. So they discovered... The T-Rex feeding site. Negative. Many of the fossils were of dinosaurs that lived tens of thousands of miles away, meaning that they must have migrated there. So the T-Rex is called a meeting of the carnivores. Of sorts. Paleontologists believe that the uh, the Tyrannosaurus surrounded their audience, declared themselves rulers of the dinosaurs, and devoured any dinosaurs stupid enough to protest. Which was plenty. Some of the T-Rexes even died from overeating. This is a geological monument to the day that the Tyrannosaurus obtained control of the carnivores and adopted the name it had carried ironically for so long. I don't get that, though. What? I don't see how you can unify a species or several species by committing a brutal act like that. Think about a terrorist attack. Those tend to unify the victims, or at least the families of the victims. I totally hear what you're saying, and I'm sure that that would have been the case with the carnivores if not for one thing. What, tiny arms? Exactly. What? Why? Think about it. (laughs) No, no, really, think about it. Okay, I I suppose the tiny arms would give them 
sort of underdog or everyman quality like Rocky. Yes. Larger dinosaurs who would ridicule them for their arms were now left, I guess, with an overwhelming amount of respect for their physical power. And maybe even now instead saw the tiny arms as... I don't know, a handicap of sorts, but a cute one. You know what I mean. Yeah, sure. Like, I want Rocky to win, but I don't think he can do it without my help. And smaller carnivores would see how a tiny armed T-Rex could become king and surely be inspired by that. Overcoming adversity can be a powerful thing. Using their accidental charm, the T-Rexes must have corralled the carnivores to unify as one, enslave the herbivorous forces of good, and bring darkness to the supercontinent. What came next was a historic battle which would shape the landscape for millions of years to come. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We still need to take a word from our sponsors. How many hours of your life have you wasted licking objects which demand saliva for proper function? How many times have you dehydrated yourself licking stacks of envelopes and removing sticky condiments from your fingers and face? How often have you watched your poor cat lick itself into exhaustion in a seemingly never-ending quest to rid itself of unwanted hair? All of these problems can be eliminated from your busy life with the purchase of one simple product. Lickety Split! This easy roll-on applicator of real human saliva is designed to take care of all of life's necessary and inconvenient licking in a convenient portable package. Designed in a laboratory in cooperation with MIT undergraduates, this stick of 100% ethically cultivated human saliva can solve any problem you previously left it to your mouth to solve. Our professional salivators spend hours producing high-quality, practically crystal-clear product. And for jobs where a roll-on applicator simply isn't enough lickety-split, now comes in a convenient spray bottle so you can apply large amounts of saliva to any large surface. Dirty windows. Countertops. Television screens. Car interiors. Glassware. Toilet seats. And many others. The list goes on. Visit your local hardware store and ask for Lickety Split today. Despite having both superior numbers and an entire supercontinent of cheerful animal allies, the almost defenseless herbivores were simply no match for the forces of evil. With the pillars of their civilization crumbling around them, the herbivores had no choice but to concede, plunging the earth into a new era where Rex was king and darkness ruled. This great dark age was a time of anarchy and savagery. Food was scarce. The carnivores had eaten all of the food dinosaurs. Food dinosaur? Food dinosaur. It's a category of pathetic dinosaurs that existed primarily to be eaten. Kind of like the rice of the prehistoric world. Oh, so virtually every living thing had to resort to the gritty life of a scavenger. Going so far as to be able to digest rotten meat and even bone. But like human tyrants, the rulers of this blighted land grew fat and complacent and slovenly, eventually growing into the giant sloth. The megatherium theory, yes. This evolved laziness left an opportunity for the forces of good to bring light to the land once again. But to do so, the dinomasses would need a new leader. Not just a leader, but a duly elected purveyor of justice. A president, even. Right. The president of the dinosaurs must be both a warrior and a peacemonger. A valiant defender of truth, liberty, and private property rights. Excuse me, have you been reading my diary? Because I was just about to say triceratops. The triceratops. You know how George Washington had those uh, teeth made of hippo tusks? Yeah, so? Well... Everyone knows that hippos evolved from Triceratops. Oh, I bet Washington knew that. That's why he chose hippo. Probably. Hippo's top quality. I mean, the Triceratops had a characteristic tricorned crest. Every corn represented truth. Justice. And the American way. The herbivores had finally evolved a super soldier capable of withstanding the gnashing teeth, barbed toes, and vicious insult of the voracious meat eaters. Until an asteroid came out of the sky and killed them all. Well... That's one of the theories, probably the most predominant, a theory strongly supported by 
Edward Drinker Cope and his flunkies. An extremely well-founded theory. Supposedly an asteroid or bolide or comet that was 10 kilometers. Or six miles. In diameter. Or super radius. Struck the Earth right around lunchtime 63 million years ago in what is now Chicxulub, Mexico. With a force equivalent to 200 million hydrogen bombs. I mean, it's certainly plausible. It plowed into Mexico, creating so much heat that the rock beneath it instantly transformed into vapor, which rocketed back into space like a spear. The rock gas then cooled and solidified into tiny daggers before being pulled back down by Earth's gravity, burning up upon re-entry and bringing the entire planet to a literal broil in well, only a matter of hours. If you believe that sort of thing. Oh, but those are just the horrifying immediate effects. Those few species that managed to survive were thrown into a very long, very cold nuclear winter as well as a planet-wide food shortage as the blocked-out sun brought photosynthesis to a near halt. Maybe. This... Theory is supported by a thin layer of iridium found in the layer of Earth corresponding to this time in history. Sure. A uranium-dated material from that 110-mile-wide crater in the Gulf of Mexico. Another theory, uh, the one that I buy into, is one that O.C. Marsh proposed. Through rigorous research, he found many similarities between the skeletons of many birds and dinosaurs and came to the conclusion that dinosaurs simply evolved into birds at an extremely rapid pace. What makes this more plausible than the asteroid theory, a theory which is 66% of the people in this room support? And correct me if I'm wrong, but majority rules, right, Logan? Wrong, Logan. Dinosaurs evolved from birds, so it makes sense that they would want to go back. Wait, really? I had no idea. I submit to you the legendary Archaeopteryx, half dinosaur, half bird, 100% real. So, according to this theory, birds ruled the Earth for a while, then evolved into dinosaurs, which also ruled the Earth for a while, then evolved back into birds, which once again ruled the Earth until man showed up. Exactly. Evolution is completely cyclical this way. With enough time, every species would eventually devolve back into a single-celled organism that we all evolved from. Mm, that makes total sense to me. Sorry, Logan, but once again, you were on the wrong side of the truth. <laughs> I'm surprised that you would ever side with uh, my main man, Marsh. Well, no one knows for sure what happened. Marsh didn't know. Cope didn't know. I certainly don't know. I can say, though, in this instance, that Cope and Marsh make strong arguments. I prefer the meteor idea, but I can't deny the staggering evidence supporting the dino bird theory. Naturally. But even a Marshman as devout as you can't deny the evidence of the asteroid. I can. Well, rather, I could. But in this instance, I'm in complete agreement. Hell, maybe it was both. Maybe the asteroid hit the Earth and killed almost all the dinosaurs, and those that survived turned into birds. Maybe it was something else entirely. Maybe it was a huge famine. Or a huge plague. Or overpopulation. Or an earthquake. Or maybe aliens commandeered the dinosaurs and took them back to their planet of supergiants and kept them as pets. Or maybe it was some perfect storm of all these things. Maybe it was just a big storm. But we may never really know. I mean, it was just too long ago. Too incomprehensibly long ago. While the dinosaurs may have died... They are not dead. They live on in our hearts, in our arts, and in our museums. In fact, life has never been better for dinosaurs than it is today. Think of it. How many dinosaurs have died in the past hundred years? Yeah, you're right. None. Mm -hmm. Dinosaur fossils are widely coveted status symbols in both scientific and aristocratic communities, adorning museum exhibits and rich kids' bedrooms the world over. Better still, thanks to global dino fandom, the future of dinosaurs... Looks brighter than the hottest meteor. Dr. Premia Mangrove, chief zoologist geneticist at Carnegie Mellon University, has begun work on a controversial program to resurrect the mighty dinosaurs by decoding their DNA. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who wouldn't like to see a gentle brontosaur storming around their neighborhood, 
picking apples off of tree branches and handing them to nearby school children. Of course, we all would. Yeah. But Dr. Mangrove, in a move that will surprise few, doesn't merely want to resurrect the good dinosaurs. You mean the ones that could revolutionize our heavy industry and replace all known forms of transportation? He wants ones? to resurrect them all. This shouldn't be a problem. I mean, movies have already designed for us a flawless dinosaur amusement park. But what did you not see in Steven Spielberg's beloved 1993 classic? A dull moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, Taylor, you would make a great archaeologist. Uh, anyhow, uh, what you didn't see is that which you couldn't see. The tiny sore. Huh. Tinysaurs were, as we discussed, an essential part of the dinosaur ecosystem. Through sheer abundance, they simultaneously sustained and controlled the food chain through boom seasons and dust bowls. Tinysaurs are too dangerous for our modern society. Simply put, the United Nations Charter forbids the development of any tiny, invisible, bloodthirsty predator that can swarm unnoticed into an animal's brain and turn years of education into protein soup. I disagree. We don't have to clone them all. You know, we can just resurrect the ones we like. Counterpoint. Take off your rose-colored glasses. The world of the dinosaurs was hot, muggy, full of predators, and had little in the way of entertainment. It wasn't made for the likes of us. Dinosaurs wouldn't understand our civilization, and even smart guys like us can barely understand theirs. It's our time now. Uh, Dino Point, if it really is our time, and we want dinosaurs, and we can bring them back, wouldn't doing so simply be a natural expression of our dominion over the planet? Uh, counterpoint, if you want to be skeletonized from the inside out by a plague of merciless tinysaurs, be my guest, but I refuse to curse my children with the scourge of a hundred million more years of enslavement to the mighty lizards. Dino Point, if we have the technology, we can just breathe new dinosaurs that are more convenient for the needs of civil society. Counterpoint, I have no response. Dino point, teacup T-Rex, pygmy pterodactyl, stegoshorty, microbronto. Counterpoint, I love your ideas. Give me more of them. Final dino point, if Mangrove does resurrect the dinosaurs, we can do a whole new episode on them. Final counterpoint, agreed. Agreed. Until then, I think our dino duties are complete. Super complete. And good job. I think we definitely covered it all. Kind of pretty much covered it. I mean, unless you had never heard of dinosaurs before, which I don't think is particularly likely. Or possible and, at all. And not in these modern days. But hey, I've got something special. Take a guess. I'll bet it's listener mail. You're, you're wising up, and I like that. Yeah. So check it out. I got this listener mail. It comes from uh, Manuel Noyega from mm. Boise, Idaho, uh -oh. interestingly enough, uh, probably in reference to our previous episode about Idaho. So it says, Dear Tay and Kay, my name is Manuel. I work at a sitgo in Boise. When you stopped for gas at my pumps, I couldn't help but follow you. I went all the way to the border of Idaho. I put this letter in the back of your van, and you promised that you'd come back for me. Where are you? Please, Manuel Noriega. Oh, it go, hang on. There's more. P.S. Please. P.P.S. Please. P.P.P.S. And this part's all actually cut out from magazines. It's just an assortment of random letters. There's an, a few numbers in there, too. And then and then it says, help, help. Manuel, uh, I don't know how we could help you i think i remember him you know he, i think he was wearing that, that beat up beat up old hat that the it had like a logo on it but it had faded off from being sun sun faded kevin we never stopped for gas once in boise we never stopped for gas once in idaho at all 
That's right. I think you should crumble this letter up, throw it away, light it on fire, forget this Manuel Noriega character ever existed. Because as far as we know, he doesn't. Done. And that about wraps it up. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Know It All with Tay and Kay. I'm Tay. I'm Kay. And join us next week when we talk about trophies. This episode of Know It All with Tay and Kay was brought to you by Sal's Business Sweats.